This is episode 127 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Meg Headland. Meg is originally from Southern Illinois, grew up in a small town named Chester, Illinois. She went to Southern Illinois University Carbondale for her bachelor's and master's in communication disorders and sciences. Her mother was a nurse, and her dad was a nurse anesthetist. Her mom went on to become a family medicine physician when she was in high school, and then she became interested in the medical field. After college, she took a traveling job in Auckland, New Zealand as an SLP in a subacute rehab center. She spent under a year there and then came back to Illinois, but wanted to continue her education, so she entered a PhD program at the University of South Alabama. She was there for a few years until the department underwent some upheaval, then she went back to Illinois and worked as an SLP with a solo practice for a while, then met her husband. She still had thoughts of medicine, and he had encouraged her to explore that. She ended up taking the few mandatory science classes she needed and the MCAT and interviewed, and voila. She chose anesthesiology and trained her first year in surgery in Birmingham, Alabama, and then three years in anesthesiology in Omaha, Nebraska. She loves critical care, so stayed an extra year to do a fellowship in critical care. Now she is an assistant professor and attending anesthesiologist and critical care physician at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. She is still married to her husband, Joe, and they have two boys, Victor, eight, and Henrik, four. I hope you guys love this conversation with Meg. She is she's awesome. I just love hearing an SLP that is now an anesthesiologist. But not only that, she has such a passion for helping to facilitate research between the two practices as well. So I am just, I love this conversation. I loved it so much. I hope you guys do too. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Megan. Hi. (laughs) So I'm so happy you are here. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So tell the people who you are. Um, I'm Meg Headland. I am a physician at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, I'm an anesthesiologist and a critical care doc. Um, and also, I guess, technically a speech language pathologist. I still maintain my C's. Awesome. Um, I'm just not licensed as uh, in, in any state to practice. Um, so I, I tell people that um, I, I am a speech language pathologist. I just don't practice as much. So, um, and um, as uh, we were discussing earlier, I uh, went to the ASHA meeting this past year in Orlando and ran into some awesome um, medically uh, based uh, speech language pathologists who um, hooked us up and. Um, I'm just so excited to kind of make that connection and um, make more connections and and expand my, um, really expand my research areas and my um, just everything with speech language pathology and the rehab and the critical care world and even the anesthesiology domain. So there's... There's a lot that overlap that um, you never would think that would. So. Yeah, I know. I'm so excited yeah. for this conversation. So, yeah. um, so what what made you go to Asha last year, Meg? Um, I um, number one needed my CEUs. Okay, good <laughs> so, enough. Yep, yep. <laughs> so yeah, so there was that. And number two, um, I am a new faculty at an academic institution. And I'm really, um, I really like doing research. I did research um, as a resident and a fellow in my residency and fellowship for anesthesia and critical care and loved it. And it's something that I always wanted to continue. And I feel like I have this unique niche where there are not many speech language pathologists who go on to become anesthesiologists and critical care physicians. So, um, you know, um, there are a few that have gone on to become ear, nose, and throat doctors, um, but in, in my field, no. So I, I felt like um, 
I would also scout out any anything promising at ASHA that seemed to be up and coming or anybody that um, was doing any um, research or had interests that would kind of jive with what I was I was doing and, and see if I could make some contacts or get some ideas for, um, for my future. So um, was it successful? Uh, clearly. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> clearly. Yes. <laughs> So here we are, um, and um, I'm so happy about that. But um, awesome, yeah. So I, um, I I really am encouraged by what I uh, what I saw. I took a lot of notes. I took a lot of pictures of some uh, posters, and um, had a lot of conversations, and it was really fun. So Excellent. I saw I saw my old um, one of my old professors. Uh, from back in the day. Um, that was great. He even remembered me. So <laughs> that was great. Oh, good. Uh, so a little, little trip down memory lane. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Good, good. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's ask the million dollar question. How did you evolve from speech pathology to anesthesiology? Yes. I knew that question was, uh, <laughs> that was coming. So uh, and that's the question that everybody asks me. I got that question when I um, interviewed for medical school, when I interviewed for residency, uh, when I interviewed for uh, my job, everybody asks me that. Um, and, and it's simple, you know, uh, when I was younger, um, and I, when I mean younger, I mean in high school, um, I, I always wanted to do something in the medical field. My mother uh, was a nurse and uh, she uh, with a crazy story of her own, but she ended up going to medical school, um, when I was a teenager and became a family practice physician. And she was a very good role model for me to just continue my education. And I always wanted to do something in the medical field. And when I was in college, I unfortunately had, um, um, cancer, but it was thyroid and it was, it was one of the more involved, types of thyroid cancer. So um, I, I had initially was um, a pre-med um, uh, label um, with a biology major. Uh, so I decided to think about doing something else that was not so um, involved and so um, so many years of training and, and just I didn't know what my future was going to hold. And uh, so I had a roommate who was studying to be a speech and language pathologist. So she really liked what she was doing. And, um, you know, I talked to her for a long time about it and um, I thought I would give it a shot and I liked it too. So um, I switched my major and um, that was that. So um, of course I went to grad school, um, same same institution. I went to Southern Illinois University of Carbondale, those Lukies. <laughs> and um, uh, it was great. I, I grew up in that area and it was just a great time. Um, and then I went off and practiced and um, did my thing. And uh, years later, I, I got married and my husband and I were um, just kind of living our life happy. And um, my situation was taken care of as far as the cancer treatment was good. Um, I had been uh, declared um, in remission, cancer-free, and I kind of thought to myself, you know, I still kind of have that dream of going to medical school and, and being a physician, and my husband, knowing that I'm a very type A um, kind of aggressive person, I guess, <laughs> Um, he said, well, you know, I'm going to have to live with you either way. So you should probably give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I thought, yeah, well, the, the worst they can say is no. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have a great career here to, to continue to do. So, um, I just needed to take a couple of, uh, courses that I hadn't already taken. Um, and so I, I took those and took the MCAT and did okay. And, uh, ended up going to medical school. So that's that. awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So. What, what made you, um, let me, let me back up. What were you doing in the field of speech pathology? Were you working in the medical setting? I was. So, yeah. um, I, well, initially I was, um, 
I did um, I did kind of a mishmash of things. Um, I did acute and subacute uh, consults for hospitals for mostly stroke and, and dysphagia. And then I did some PRN work in nursing homes and, and long-term care facilities. Um, and then um, uh, when I was, when I met my husband, um, there was a great job available for early intervention. So I switched to doing that for um, several years. But when I was in medical school, believe it or not, I worked full time um, at a nursing home that was oh my gosh. like two blocks from the medical school. Oh my gosh. So yeah, uh, I was, uh, our medical school lectures were online for most courses. The ones that um, I needed to be there for, like biochemistry and physiology and those things, I would attend in person because those you can't really miss. But kind of the more fluffy courses, um, behavior, those types of things, I would watch online. Um, because I actually had, you know, those are courses we took at, um, in undergrad and, and grad school as speech-language pathologists. We have those kind of built into our curriculum. And so I felt that um, I was a little bit better prepared for those. And I was with my exam scores. So um, so I watched those, those lectures online. And um, it, it allowed me to be able to work. Um, at least 30 hours a week. And yeah, well, I don't know. I look back and it's all a blur. I'm sure it is. <laughs> um, uh, so, so it was kind of a mishmash, but most of it was medical. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So then what got you, what, what sparked your interest in anesthesiology? Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's very multifactorial. Yeah, okay. My father uh, is a retired nurse anesthetist, and that was um, interesting. He would take me to work a lot um, just because my mom was in undergrad, you know, getting ready to um, apply to medical school, and then she went to medical school, and then she went and did her residency. So um, my dad was kind of in charge of um, watching his kids, and that meant, you know, we hung around the hospital a lot. Um, so I, just by default, I was experienced to a lot of the operating room, um, goings on, but, uh, um, when I was in medical school, um, oops, I need to tell my computer to stop trying to install something. Uh, when I was in medical school, uh, we had a required third year rotation in surgery and it's a 12 week rotation. Um, but at my medical school, uh, two weeks of that were uh, anesthesia. We had to do two weeks of anesthesia. That's not a requirement everywhere, but at ours it was. And I just was so amazed at um, just how the anesthesiologist and the um, nurse anesthetist at this institution were very, um, just the, the way they, um, the way they, just oh my goodness pause for a second yeah you're fine <laughs> do you do you hear that I do okay stop that um okay well we'll see we'll get it edited out no big deal okay all right so at at the hospital where uh I rotated for my 12-week surgical internship or not my surgical never mind back up when I was in medical school we had a 12-week surgical uh, rotation in our third year of medical school. And um, two weeks of that was anesthesia. And um, not every medical school has that, but we, ours did. And um, I was very amazed at how the anesthesiologists just kind of had this, underst- like they just knew what to do without talking, without just, when there was um, a need for help from other um, anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists in the room. It was almost like they had this dance that they would do and they knew what each other needed without even saying a word and they would just glide past each other and um, they just did things themselves. And instead of ordering or asking for things, they just 
got things and did things. And I liked that. I liked that they just didn't have to, didn't have to ask. They didn't have to do anything. They just did it. And each, each person on that team just kind of knew what they were supposed to do and did it. And it was so fantastic. And I just really liked it. And so um, that was it for me. I I also really liked surgery and I ended up doing a, a little bit of exploring in that domain, but anesthesia was really just it for me. So cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you do epidurals too? Yes. 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 I, I just had a baby two months ago and I, the, he missed on the first time with the oh, epidural. Sorry. Yeah. So I was screaming in pain for two hours and then they redid it and gave me another one and it worked wonderfully. So, oh, good. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, yes, they are great. I've had two and yeah. Yeah. Yes. So gratefully got it in the second time. So and congratulations on your baby. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So what do you want to dive into Meg? Thank you for giving us your background. It's, it's so fascinating. So, Oh, oh gosh. Um, dealer's choice. I don't know. Awesome. There's so much to talk about. You can just fire away. All right. So um, let's see. So you are a critical care doc. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of, you mentioned in, in your outline here, a new endotracheal tube idea. I, yeah. So um, I don't know how many of your listeners uh, work in um, a hospital setting or an acute care hospital setting, but there are patients who um, have respiratory failure and they end up needing mechanical ventilation support. And um, the way we do that is we place um, a breathing tube and it goes into, into um, the glottis and into the trachea. And we provide positive pressure and then positive end expiratory pressure and so on and so forth. We can, the patient can um, help us or help the machine or the machine can help the patient or the machine can breathe for the patient. It just depends on their level of um, respiratory failure, I guess. Um, the, the endotracheal tubes that we use are made mostly of PVC, um, except for some specialized tubes that we use. Um, but, um, patients who are admitted with severe pneumonias or acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, say from a very bad influenza where there's just, it's not necessarily an infection, but just a bunch of fluid in their lungs, um, or any other reason that a patient might need to have frequent bronchoscopies. So kind of like if you're just using a fees, but with suction over and over and over daily on a daily basis into the trachea and into the main stem and secondary and tertiary bronchi, just to kind of suction out mucus and schmutz. Um, Just to kind of help with, um, you know, alveolar ventilation and, um, VQ mismatch, you know, ventilation and, and, um, improving that sort of thing. Um, so the problem is, is that with the PVC, it's just, you know, this kind of plasticky kind of thing. It's not plastic, but it feels like plastic. Um, and if we want to do those bronchs, they have, the tubes have to be fairly large in order to pass the bronchoscope. And as we know, large tubes for a certain amount of time can cause um, laryngeal trauma and also subglottic stenosis and tracheal stenosis and so on and so forth, which can, um, and and speaking as our, from the SLP standpoint in our world um, can lead to vocal problems and um, trach problems because these people can sometimes end up with tracheostomies and dysphagia problems and so on and so forth. So I, um, I'm working on trying to find a material um, to help create a tube that might be able to expand uh, for a brief period of time to accommodate a bronchoscope, um, but then um, go back to its original shape in the smaller form to try to mitigate those um, risks of damage. Um, for the idea of 
a prolonged intubation, but a short term situation. Um, so, and it, it's, a, it's something that would be ideal for ICU um, or for um, the operating room if somebody was going to be repeatedly bronched in the operating room. Sometimes those are the case. Um, lung transplant, um, those sorts of things. Lung transplant patients get a lot of bronchs. Yeah. So this is the type of breathing tube that a lung transplant patient would also benefit from. Awesome. So, yeah. How far along are you with this idea, Meg? Oh, well, I've had this idea. Uh, this idea um, was born in, oh gosh, 2016. And <laughs> I finally found um, the somebody who had the base material that I think would have the properties, but now I have to find somebody who would mix it with the PVC. So gotcha. um, yeah, it's just up here. Yeah. Um, so I still have to kind of figure out what I'm going to, how I'm going to make it, but you know, those, that's just how things are for a while and then yeah they get made and hopefully you know have you ever considered some sort of like 3d printer model or something of that um yes but the 3d printer um it can't it doesn't it won't have the properties that i need i mean okay. the 3D printer could print it could print a, a tube um yeah. but it wouldn't be any different not the exact yeah it wouldn't be gotcha. any different than the tube that i already have um because it wouldn't have the the uh, shape shape memory is gotcha. the, is the property that I'm looking for. Um, I I know of the material that I need. I just uh, it's just that the material mixed with what we already use hasn't been created. So, gotcha. um, but soon, yeah, soon, yeah. cool, awesome, so, yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. All right. Um, what's next? Let's see. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about virtual reality here? So virtual reality is something that is being looked at at our institution uh, by my partners and, and others in other departments for the alleviation of pain um, in minor procedures and in the use of uh, procedures like MRI, and uh, CT scans to help with anxiety. Um, but um, VR, I think, could also be very useful for speech-language pathology for language purposes, um, for description, for um, storytelling, for um, really anything language. And, um, you know, I kind of come from I, I do adults and, and I am um, the adults I work with usually are, um, I would say the majority are over 50. Sometimes I, in the neuro ICU, which is more like a combination neuro neurosurgery, I, I do get a several in their forties, but, um, more so over 50, but so it would be, um, more so dealing with, um, subarachnoid hemorrhages and, and uh, hemorrhagic and, and ischemic stroke. But um, I, I think that there is a role, um, an emerging role for VR to help with um, language and cognition uh, for therapy. And I think um, also for delirium and for um, just, just in the acute care, the subacute subacute phase, just, yeah, I, yeah. I, I would love to explore that, especially with our department <laughs> or anybody else who would love to do that. Um, it's relatively inexpensive way to get, to do some research in, in the grand scheme of things. I know that VR goggles are not cheap, but if you look at research as a whole, it's, it's a relatively inexpensive um, material, but, um, but it's just an idea that's out there. And yeah, cause I know, and obviously it seems like delirium is sort of a hot topic these days yes. with how we can prevent it and things like that. So I'd yeah. love to hear kind of how you would, how you would marry those two together. Well, I can tell you that, um, with, with the anesthesia world, 
um, in particular, take going outside of the ICU world and the anesthesia world, um, we're now finding that, um, especially with our older populations, um, we have this emerging post-op cognitive dysfunction um, diagnosis um, after an anesthetic. And that doesn't really um, present itself until about um, maybe a few weeks after anesthesia. And it can persist um, that we know of up to about six months, but we're getting some straggling reports of longer than that. Um, and it's, it is um, self-limiting. It's not related to Alzheimer's disease. It's not related to a neurodegenerative disease, although it can exacerbate a neurodegenerative disease. Um, so um, we know that it exists, but now we're trying to figure out how do we, uh, how do we keep it from happening? Um, but if it's happening, how do we, you know, shorten the duration? How do we mitigate it? How do we, you know, treat it? How, how do we do those things? So that's, uh, that, that, that is another domain that speech language pathologists and anesthesiologists can work together. Um, to, Amazing. Yeah. 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 And, it, and we're finding that it's not just with, um, so there, so I'll back up for a second. And um, for those that don't know, there are many different types of, of anesthetics. There are, uh, there are different levels of sedation, and then there are different types of anesthetics. So sedation levels, you have, um, you have a, a moderate sedation where you might go and um, maybe have an MRI and you just are uh, claustrophobic. So someone will give you um, a little bit of sedating medication to where you're still awake and you can still talk and you can still respond just to verbal, but you just don't care. Yes. Um, and then there's... <laughs> deep sedation where um, maybe somebody's going to have a pacemaker put in. Um, they're pretty healthy otherwise, but they have this cardiac issue and you don't need anyone to manage an airway, but you want them to be kind of calm. Um, and the cardiologist is going to use a lot of local anesthetic when they put the pacemaker in. Um, so you just give um, some medication to make them really sleepy, but they'll respond to deep pain and, and wake up. Um, and and the, they're still breathing. Um, and then you have a general anesthetic where the patient is out and they don't respond to pain and they may or may not breathe on their own. Um, and you need an anesthesiologist available to manage an airway. Um, and then you have the, the different anesthetics. So you have IV anesthetics, you have, in, and then you have inhalational anesthetics. So, um, but with the post-op cognitive dysfunction, we're finding that th it happens whether it's an inhalational anesthetic or an IV anesthetic. So the type of anesthetic doesn't matter. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of want to, I think this probably ties into like treatments for patients with TBIs and extension to patients with strokes who exhibit mild TBI symptoms. Mm -hmm. What do you think in there? Well, um, with mild TBI, um, I, uh, I will, I'm in the process of doing a lit search right now um, <laughs> for a project to um, work on. There, I, I came across a, a research article um, through Medscape about some, some blue light therapy and um, as it relates to mild TBI and some improved um, post-op or po not post-op um, post-test cognitive scores. And it was done with some high school football players or college football. I can't remember if it was high school or college. I have to go back and look at the article. Um, but um, they, they give, they gave these kids a test. I say kids because they gave these kids a test uh, before the season and then the season went on and then after the season um, they gave them a post test and um, they noted that the scores were different and then they did this therapy with them this blue light therapy then after the blue light therapy they gave them another test and it, it improved so there's this theory that this blue light wavelength 
has some efficacy in improving a portion of the brain. Um, clearly, it needs to be researched more and uh, with uh, um, imaging as well, because you're you know figuring out what part of the brain and, and so on. But um, it, it's something that I think might be able to translate over into the post-op cognitive dysfunction domain. So that's a study that I think would be um, interesting and um, also because we have the Chiefs. So <laughs> I wouldn't mind doing a study with the Chiefs or the KU football team, you know, so, um, or our high school team as well. And, and you know, the um, TBI thing is, is um, kind of a hot button uh, these days. So, um, but, you know, even on just a, uh, um, and any other patient population, I think that is something that speech language pathologists could also um, potentially um, get involved in a study with. So yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, because I mean, TBI is, is, is your domain too. So, yeah. um, so why not? So. Awesome. All right. Um, let's see. Where do you want to go from here, Meg? Um, Developing a new perioperative screening oh. tool for OSA. Yeah, so, um, yes, another research project. I have all these research projects that I'm doing. I just kind of got settled, and then I'm, uh, it's funny. Um, well, <laughs> I, I got settled, and then uh, I started sending my, our research coordinator all these uh, ideas and uh, that I had been storing up. And, you know, the first couple emails were like, oh, these are awesome ideas. We'll do some lip searches. And then finally she's like, just can you give me a break, Hedlund? Because <laughs> <laughs> I love but, it. <laughs> so anyway, this, this was the, um, this project is the project that I started when I was a resident and continued as a fellow. And um, so sleep apnea is, something that we all kind of know a little what it is when we say the word sleep apnea. Yeah. You know that it's a respiratory dis disorder of, uh, most people think of snoring, but really it's uh, not everybody who has sleep apnea snores. It's, it's more um, you, there are periods of complete cessation of breathing and hypoxic periods when you're sleeping. So it's a, pretty much persistent state of hypoxemia or low oxygen in the blood um, when somebody's sleeping. And this is a disease that can really cause a lot of secondary problems like uh, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, um, coronary artery disease leading to higher risks of heart attack, stroke, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, pretty much every organ system in your body um, it ha is at risk for being affected by sleep apnea. And when we go to see our patients in the pre-op bay um, on the day of surgery to talk to them about anesthesia and tell them, you know, about all of the risks, there's always the risk for um, post-op pulmonary complication and all of the other complications that go along with manipulating blood pressure and so on with our anesthetic. And um, we, not everybody who has sleep apnea is diagnosed with sleep apnea. In fact, most people aren't. And so um, we try to screen with this, um, the most popular screening tool called the stop bang uh, screening tool. It's, um, it's a questionnaire with some measurements and um, it's it's fairly um, sensitive, but um, when it's done, it's not. You know, there's it, it, it requires you know a lot of devotion by the pre-op nursing staff, and it's not their fault completely that it doesn't get done because there's always the anesthesiologist that butts in to get their work, their pre-op and their consent form. There's the surgeon that comes in. There are the residents that come in. There's the um, the operating room circulating nurse. There's the 
whoever needs like some most of the patients need to be shaved in the particular area that they're being worked you know there's all these people coming in to interrupt and so this this particular screening tool it's it's rare if it's completed and so um so we don't adequately have a, a good picture of who's at risk for these complications so i I'm trying to develop a screening tool that you don't even need the patient participation for really. You, when, when somebody has moderate to severe sleep apnea, um, the body starts to create extra tissue. So as a speech and language pathologist, you'll notice people who have sleep apnea have a lot more tissue in the, in the oral pharynx. Uh, they have thicker necks. They, um, they have fuller faces, they're just thicker tongues, they have, just have all these features that you can just kind of, you just, you just know they have sleep apnea. And um, one of the first places this extra tissue deposits is under the eyelid. And um, th they can develop this floppy eyelid syndrome. So I'm trying to develop um, a screening tool involving the floppy eyelid so that you can just go up to somebody and retract their eyelid. And um, if they have a certain amount of lid laxity, then you it can be, you can have a certain amount of expectation that, you know, you need to go say lighter on the narcotics or, post-op or, um, you know, maybe they don't need, um, maybe they need a different type of anesthetic than whatever you're planning. I don't know. But, um, or maybe, you know, their high blood pressures that you see is, or maybe their, their blood pressure is controlled to, right now, but it's going to be very hard to control while you're in the operating room because of their sleep apnea, so on and so forth. So it can, it can give you information that you can't get otherwise. Um, because yeah. So yeah, cool. Anyway. Um, what else are you thinking of as far as other um, perioperative optimization clinic development? Well, we're trying to, we're trying to improve our periop clinic here at um, KU, and we're we're really trying to follow this trend of prehab. So prehabilitation. Um, I know that my colleagues are more interested in the nutritional aspect and um, kind of the PTOT aspect, and and here I come because I had the speech therapy background, so I'm kind of wanting to speech, especially for the neuro crowd um, and the crowd that um, I know are going to have um, maybe more um, arterial hypoxemia, like vascular patients that might have clamping in their arteries and so on. I, I really think that they need to have baseline cognitive studies done um, and baseline uh, speech language pathology screenings Yep. if not just evaluations, yeah. just yeah. because, um, you know, those, those, these, um, you know, cranies for vascular procedures or um, just vascular procedures in general are very high risk. And um, it's just nice, I, I feel, to have a baseline um, understanding of what their cognitive function was, because I, you know, when I'm attending in the neuro ICU, um, I get the patients post-op and, you know, most of them recover pretty well, but some of them, um, you know, they have something go wrong and we just don't know what, what we're basing anything off of. So it's, it's something I feel like for certain patients that are high risk for cognitive decline, we really need to have speech language pathology involved. Yeah, I think, I think that's, it's such a hot topic now because you know, some of these patients, you know, it, when, as SLPs are seeing them, it's so hard to decipher what was, like you said, a, a baseline issue or what is, right. is, is now, you know, a result of the surgery. So, yeah. 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 Awesome. All right. Let's see. Where are we, Meg? I think we have a few more things. Um, 
What are you thinking as far as the pupillary dilation and auditory discrimination? That sounds interesting. You know, I came across a study that um, looked at patients who were intubated and kind of semi-sedated in the ICU and... um, it was a situation where um, the the medical staff, or not the medical, but the nursing staff and the physicians weren't quite sure what the patient was fully understanding. It's not a, a case of a brain dead patient, but a patient who's just not waking up and and doing well. Um, so, um, so this team did a study where they um, brought loved ones in and they had this reaction, this pupillary dilation reaction to different, to, to their loved ones. And it was just something that caught my eye as a possible study. I don't, I have to think more about that because I, I'm not sure um, but it seemed like they were discriminating. So it was a it was a very discriminatory dilation. They did it when their when their loved ones were speaking, their pupils were dilating um, differently than when just the, whoever was regularly taking care of them. Oh, interesting. Were, with talking, yeah. So you know, the question was, you know, is this an acknowledgement of their loved one being there? Or is it just a, you know, just an autonomic reaction? Um, So it caught my eye because it's kind of something up my alley, auditory discrimination. But I don't know. It's just, it was just an interesting kind of piece. And I thought, hmm, that might be something that a speech language pathologist might want to to look at. Because, um, you know, we're always looking for ways that, uh, those who are locked in or nonverbal with limited mobility can communicate. And um, I mean, this would have been, this would be one of those studies that could give us an answer. Yes or no. Um, So. Awesome. Cool. So my, I guess my next question is, I mean, I loved hearing about all this, Meg, what kind (laughs) of, you know, I, I think, when I read what we were going to talk about today, I was like, oh, okay. So she spends all her time in the ICU with patients administering anesthesia, but it seems like you've got more of a research bug going oh on too. So what, how do you, how are you balancing your time? Or I guess, what is your, you know, That's hours? a good question. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So um, you would think I would be just in my office all the time, but I am not. Uh, <laughs> I, my uh, normal split um, is about, 60-40 ICU to OR. Um, this year is probably going to be a little bit more like 70-30 because um, a couple of my partners are on maternity leave. Um, hence why I had to push back my interview because one was uh, having a baby. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but, and so I've been doing a lot of ICU from January till till now. Um, but normally I, I do something kind of like this. Um, I don't know why this is beeping. We'll just, oh, give me just one second. I'm just going to tell it to stop trying to apply this thing. I think it's trying to update and I just don't, there, just canceling. Maybe. All right, never mind. Okay, so my my normally my time um, is is split like this. So I will do one week in the ICU a month, and then um, and that's mo- Monday through Sunday, and it's an availability of twenty four hours a day for those seven days. Um, and then, uh, and I cover, um, the neuro ICU, neuro, neuro surge, um, the cardiac ICU or the cardiothoracic surgical ICU it just depends where they, where I'm scheduled to be. 
Yeah. Um, and then we're going to look to start adding the burn ICU. And then I also cover some, well, I meaning my team. We also, whenever we're asked to, we cover some of the very, very sick maternal fetal medicine patients. We have a really good relationship with them. And um, then uh, after my ICU week, I am post, post call. We are, we get five days of off time, but it's, can, we have to use that. We don't have to, but we, we kind of are vo voluntold <laughs> to use that time as office time. Um, so here I am. <laughs> and then, um, cause I was in the ICU last week gotcha. and then, uh, <laughs> and then, um, the, the other two weeks are usually, um, OR time or, um, a random um, night float time. We do some night float for our partners um, just to kind of relieve some of that 24 hour stress. Even though we are available 24 hours on our uh, ICU, we do some night float um, availability because um, we take home call. Um, but sometimes the ICUs um, fall apart and um, we need somebody in house to um, intubate or put somebody on ECMO or something like that. So, um, so there's somebody Monday through Thursday night in-house um, that the shift is, it is generally for just like an emergency situation shift. It's not a, um, hey, this patient needs potassium. Can you give them yeah. potassium? Yeah. No, that's a resident order. Yeah. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's that. Um, and then uh, when I'm in the OR, um, I just do my shift until I'm supposed to go home. Um, and I don't do, I don't take call, regular OR call. And I don't work on the weekends when I'm in the OR because of all, because we work 24 seven, basically when we're in the ICU. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. So when, when are you spending all your time doing the research stuff? Um, today, yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's when we have my research time. Now, if cool. I were to apply for and get a really large grant, which I have not done, but yeah. maybe soon, I don't know. I have to apply, but yeah. um, then the department would um, be more generous with my time. Gotcha. They would allow me to have more time away to work on that, that research, gotcha. but, which some of my partners have done. And, and that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that my, the, the department is very um, supportive of research. In fact, they're, they're really trying to drive us to publish and, and do more research things. So they, they are very like, do more research, do more research. So, yeah. Have, have you always had the research bug, Meg? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. have. Um, I have. Uh, I, I did. I, you know, when I, uh, in between uh, my uh, master's degree in speech language pathology and med school, I did, um, I did work on a PhD in uh, Alabama. Um, I spent a couple of years down in Mobile at University of South Alabama, and um, I met some fantastic people, and it was a lot of fun. Um, there, there were some things going on in the department that um, we can talk about another time. But uh, I, I ended up coming back home and and working, and yeah. so yeah. But I, I, you know, I did research there and it was, um, it was fun. Yeah. Awesome. The whole process was a lot of fun. So. Awesome. Well, yeah. This has been such a cool conversation, Meg. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've thought of some other, a lot of other ideas really about, um, you know, more research on the speech and language pathology side. I think a lot of the things that I've talked about are more in the medical side because that's kind of where I've been living for the last 10 years. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I feel that speech language pathologists could really collaborate with, oops, I'm pen at myself, um, with, <laughs> with, with 
me and, and my cohort, um, you know, we have a lot of dysphagia um, that happens after extubation for patients who have been intubated for a long time, but we also have a lot of voice characteristic changes. And um, one of the things I've noted is that, you know, we see this after extubation, but we don't really pay attention to it in a, in a longitudinal fashion. So um, at least not that I'm aware of. So, you know, following some patients um, who complain of vocal changes or sore throats, persistent, persistent sore throats or persistent vocal changes. And, um, seeing what is is really happening with these vocal characteristic changes. I know that when, uh, especially when, when we have learners that are intubating, whether it be um, EMT students, nurses, whatever, residents, um, you know, there's always the risk for um, damage in some point, you know, arytenoid dislocation, um, just laceration of a true or false cord, um, just some sort of thing. So, and those things can alter vocal quality um, temporarily or permanently. And so, um, it, you know, those things would be interesting to follow. And I, I haven't, when I went down to ASHA, I didn't see any, any um, coasters like that. Um, so it was something I was thinking about. Um, you know, and then uh, with our neuro population in the OR, there are um, evoked potentials that are done for sensory and motor, um, but there, you know, they we don't do any um, evoked potential research uh, for language or cognition when they get back to the ICU. So I remember when I was in um, my PhD program, there was um, there was some work done uh people were doing on some evoke potentials and and so on so if anybody was interested in that um i i just don't see it in the in the icu so um and then also i do my home base is actually the cardiac icu believe it or not so i know i talk a lot about the neuro stuff but my home base is the cardiac icu that's probably where i feel the most comfortable um, I, I take care of a lot of, of really sick cardiac patients. And I mean, if you can think of all the cardiac machines in the world, um, I manage them all, all yeah. of them. So um, I, I think um, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I was thinking about, um, you know, some of the maneuvers that we use for patients who have dysphagia and the uh, cardiac, the cardiophysiology um, after effects of those maneuvers and are they appropriate? Are those maneuvers appropriate for those patients? So um, just, just some of those, those things. And I've always yeah. wanted to write, since I, since I got interested in the ICU, I always wanted to write an ICU book for speech language pathologists. Please do, Meg. Please do in your spare time. Yes. <laughs> but I need somebody to write it with me. So. I, I'm sure after this episode, you'll have plenty of people. So, so awesome. Um, yeah. So, what, well, so anybody, the- anybody wants to write a book with me, please let me know because, um, I feel like there's one that would be needed and um, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm just that far removed from the practice of speech language pathology that I would need somebody to help yeah. me. But I, but I'm so into it on the medical side that I could just really tell you. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Drugs and all the other stuff. So, yeah. So, so let me ask you, do you, do you think that some of the maneuvers we're doing are impacting cardiac function? Do you think well, that? Uh, maybe, um, you know, if you have a patient who, for example, let's just say has my, has a regurgitation legion. Okay. So like they have, um, a large amount of backflow of blood through on, on the left side of their heart. Um, and you ask them to do a Valsalva maneuver. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
you could potentially induce a very severe pulmonary edema in that patient and then make them have to be intubated. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's little things like that, that, yeah, you know, yeah. you don't think about because why would you, right. you know, right. I, I mean, it, it's not anybody's fault. It's just, why would you, you know, right. But, um, but if you, if you, you know, knew the ICU basics, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, then, you know, oh yeah, you know, in the chart, this patient has, you know, severe MR and, uh, you know, he's up for, uh, he's going to get a new valve, you know, sometime next week or whatever, but he has dysphagia and this is our plan. So we're going to not do that. And we're going to just recommend X, Y, and Z. So, um, yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's. I was gonna say that's awesome. It's not awesome, but it's that's definitely information no, that we need to. Know. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so. I think you know one of the things that like I'm so passionate about is we just have you know the field of speech pathology is kind of wide open, and some areas are so underserved with you know they're so desperate for somebody to work in, mm-hmm. and you know it's it's not I'm not shaming anybody or bashing anybody, but some places will literally just take anybody with their C's you know, regardless mm-hmm. of their background, you know, they may yeah. only have background in early intervention. And I say, right. Don't say only in a derogatory manner. I say their experience is working with, you know, mm-hmm. children in early intervention. And, you know, now you right. throw them into an ICU setting and like you said, it can be very dangerous, but we don't even know what the, da- what danger or what harm we are capable of causing. So, right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's just, it's the same for any field. It's the same for my field. You know, you, it's, it's, you can't take a pediatric anesthesiologist and put them in the ICU, you know, um, it's, it's, and they wouldn't want to do that because they would just feel way out of their element. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I don't do peds. Like I, I love, I love those rotations when I was a resident, but, and I, you know, I might do a healthy 10 year old for some procedure, but you give me a six month old baby and I'm going to call my, I'm going to call my partners and yeah. say, Hey, can you come and anesthetize this baby, please? Yeah. 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 They're not 60 years old yeah. <laughs> with, with a failing heart. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel about speech pathology. So there we go, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Did we cover everything? Um, I guess I think so. Any final thoughts or anything else you want to touch on? Um, oh my, I mean, <laughs> there are so many things, you know, <laughs> so many things, but uh, you know, if anybody has any, any questions or co- comments or, um, ideas or, you know, uh, anything, you know, please reach out to me. I, and more than happy to um, to talk to people and communicate with people and, um, and and you know anything. I I just um, I really like what I do and um, I, I don't know I I I don't know I don't know how to explain it. It's just it's just a lot of fun and I I really have um, I just have a lot of passion for um, just kind of improving things and, um, bit by bit. And, um, I think it would be great to kind of be a pioneer and working to put these fields together and, um, really helping along, um, the medical SLP community. Oh, one more thing. Um, if you are a medical SLP and you work in a hospital, ask your anesthesiologist to um, observe a bronch and see if they'll let you help or, you know, do one or help with one because it's great practice to, um, to kind of look and, and see what you can see in the airway and so on and so forth. It's, it's a lot of fun and, um, you get to learn your anatomy really well. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really good. It's really yeah. cool. So I, I always tell my, my SLPs to, um, uh, 
not my SLPs, but the SLPs in my facility. Yeah. Um, sorry, I don't want to sound like no, that's that. Okay. I don't want to sound like that doctor. Yeah, that's but, okay. Um, <laughs> Um, but you know, they're more than welcome to come and, and, um, and hang out and, and all that stuff. So, awesome. but yeah, and That's also, uh, you know, intubating in the, in the operating room, um, it's, it's really, you know, they should, you know, come down and take a look. It's really neat to see the cores just like right there. You know, it's, I remember, you know, the first time. I intubated somebody and looked at the cords. I was like, oh, that's what they look like. Yeah. Oh, because, you know, you see pictures of them and you're like, oh, yeah. But when they when you see them in person, you're like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And they, they're like snowflakes. No two look alike. So. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Meg. I think I think you're going to be. Oh, I'm so excited for this because I think you're going to be such a um, a huge part of our field going forward because I know there's so many SLPs that work in the ICU that would love to conduct some sort of research and there doesn't seem to be you know anybody that's capable of of doesn't have the research institution to support them or anything so I think the collaboration between you and a lot of these clinicians that might have some of these ideas too is going to be wonderful and beautiful I'm excited so yeah yeah awesome so we'll we'll put your information here in the show notes and make sure everybody is able to contact you if they would like. So great. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Meg. Of course. This was wonderful. Okay. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.